Welcome! You're listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Hi, I'm Mike Paul, and welcome to this podcast of articles from Ars Technica, a presentation of Airs LA. We have four articles for you today. We'll examine how the war in Ukraine affects space travel, Explore how we can finally, maybe, ditch all those passwords we have to remember. Find out where things can go wrong in some types of brain studies. And take a deep dive into the specs of a new computer, the new Mac Studio. Our first article is by Eric Berger, published on March 21st, 2022. OneWeb turns to a competitor, SpaceX, to complete its constellation. OneWeb announced on Monday that it has reached an agreement with SpaceX to complete OneWeb's constellation of low-Earth orbit broadband satellites. This decision was necessitated after the UK-based OneWeb decided it could no longer launch on Russia's Soyuz rocket following the war against Ukraine. The Russian invasion occurred just days before 34 OneWeb satellites were due to launch on a Soyuz rocket from Kazakhstan. In response to Western sanctions, Russia placed extraordinary demands on OneWeb in return for conducting the launch scheduled for March 4th, and the launch ultimately did not take place. Those satellites remain in Kazakhstan for now. Effectively, this ended OneWeb's agreement with Russia for satellite launches. The Soyuz had launched nearly all 428 of the company's satellites that are presently in orbit. The company had planned to use the Soyuz rocket to complete its first-generation constellation of 648 satellites by the end of 2022. Using Arian space as an intermediary, OneWeb had already paid for those six launches. Russia has vowed not to return the money. With the Soyuz rocket off the table, there were few other launch options for OneWeb, which is headquartered in London and partly owned by the UK government. Europe has no spare launch capacity, with all of its remaining Ariane 5 launches spoken for. Meanwhile, the Ariane 6 rocket is probably at least two years away from having operational capacity. That left SpaceX, the only Western company with excess launch capacity for medium-lift missions, in the near term. OneWeb CEO Neil Masterson said in a news release on Monday that the first launch on a Falcon 9 rocket will take place later this year. We thank SpaceX for their support, which reflects our shared vision for the boundless potential of space, he said. With these launch plans in place, we're on track to finish building out our full fleet of satellites and deliver robust, fast, secure connectivity around the globe. OneWeb declined to disclose terms of the deal, both the amount paid per launch and the number of satellites per launch. Although SpaceX was really the only viable option if OneWeb wanted to complete its first-generation constellation within the next 12 to 24 months, this could not have been an easy decision. SpaceX, of course, operates its own broadband constellation, Starlink. 
While the two companies do not directly compete for commercial service, OneWeb is not targeting general consumers. They are both going after government contracts around the world. Now, OneWeb is in a position to directly support a competitor by subsidizing the costs of its launch operations. Monday's decision also underscores the reality that Russia's invasion of Ukraine is having a devastating impact on the giant country's space industry. No Western nation is likely to do business with Russia in space for a long time, and that will leave SpaceX, with its reusable Falcon 9 and excess launch capacity, in a stronger position. This all comes 20 years after SpaceX CEO Elon Musk visited Russia in order to purchase a repurposed ICBM to launch the Mars Oasis project. Russia's rejection of Musk is part of what spurred him to found SpaceX. Now, two decades later, Musk is the one selling rockets to the rest of the world. Our second article is by Lily Hay Newman, published on March 20th, 2022. A big bet to kill the password for good. After years of tantalizing hints that a passwordless future is just around the corner, you're probably still not feeling any closer to that digital unshackling. Ten years into working on the issue, though, the FIDO Alliance, an industry association that specifically works on secure authentication, thinks it has finally identified the missing piece of the puzzle. On Thursday, the organization published a white paper that lays out FIDO's vision for solving the usability issues that have plagued passwordless features and seemingly kept them from achieving broad adoption. FIDO's members collaborated to produce the paper, and they span chip makers like Intel and Qualcomm, prominent platform developers like Amazon and Meta, financial institutions like American Express and Bank of America, and the developers of all major operating systems, Google, Microsoft, and Apple. The paper is conceptual, not technical, but after years of investment to integrate what are known as the FIDO2 and WebAuthN passwordless standards into Windows, Android, iOS, and more, everything is now riding on the success of this next step. The key to being successful for FIDO is being readily available. We need to be as ubiquitous as passwords, says Andrew Shikyar, executive director of the FIDO Alliance. Passwords are part of the DNA of the web itself, and we're not trying to supplant that. Not using a password should be easier than using a password. In practice, though, even the most seamless passwordless schemes are not quite there. Part of the challenge simply lies with the enormous inertia passwords have built up. Passwords are difficult to use and manage, which drives people to take shortcuts like reusing them across accounts and creates security issues at every turn. Ultimately, though, they're the devil you know. Educating consumers about passwordless alternatives and getting them comfortable with the change has proven difficult. Beyond just acclimating people, though, Fido is looking to get to the heart of what still makes passwordless schemes tough to navigate. And the group has concluded that it all comes down to the procedure for switching or adding devices. If the process for setting up a new phone, say, is too complicated, and there's no simple way to log in to all of your apps and accounts, 
or if you have to fall back to passwords to reestablish your ownership of those accounts, then most users will conclude that it's too much of a hassle to change the status quo. The passwordless FIDO standard already relies on a device's biometric scanners, or a master PIN you select, to authenticate you locally without any of your data traveling over the internet to a web server for validation. The main concept that FIDO believes will ultimately solve the new device issue is for operating systems to implement a, quote, FIDO credential, unquote, manager, which is somewhat similar to a built-in password manager. Instead of literally storing passwords, this mechanism will store cryptographic keys that can sync between devices and are guarded by your device's biometric or passcode lock. At Apple's Worldwide Developer Conference last summer, the company announced its own version of what Fido is describing, an iCloud feature known as Passkeys in iCloud Keychain, which Apple says is its contribution to a post-password world. Passkeys are WebAuth end credentials with the amazing security that the standard provides, combined with the usability of being backed up, synced, and working on all of your devices, Garrett Davidson, an engineer for Apple's App Authentication Experience team, explained at the conference in June. We're storing them in iCloud Keychain. Just like everything else in your iCloud Keychain, they're end-to-end -end encrypted, so not even Apple can read them, and they're very easy to use. In most cases, it takes just a single tap or click to sign in. If you lost your old iPhone, for example, and you're unboxing a new one, the transfer process can happen simply through whatever setup flow Apple offers at the time. If you lost your iPhone and decide to switch to Android, or are moving between any other two digital ecosystems, the process may not be quite as smooth. But Fido's white paper also includes another component, a proposed addition to its specification that would allow one of your existing devices, like your laptop, to act as a hardware token itself, similar to standalone Bluetooth authentication dongles, and provide physical authentication over Bluetooth. The idea is that this would still be virtually fish-proof since Bluetooth is a proximity-based protocol and can be a useful tool as needed in developing different versions of truly passwordless schemes that don't have to retain a backup password. Christian Brand, a product manager at Google who focuses on identity and security and collaborates on FIDO projects, says that the passkey-style plan follows logically from the smartphone or multi-device image of a passwordless future. This grand vision of let's move beyond the password. We've always had this end state in mind, to be honest. It just took until everyone had mobile phones in their pockets, Brand says. Google joined Fido just months after its formation in 2013. Hopefully for the users it will be a small behavioral change, but the technology is a giant leap forward, he said. To Fido, the biggest priority is a paradigm shift in account security that will make phishing a thing of the past. Attackers have been masters at tricking users into unintentionally handing over their passwords, and even two-factor authentication codes or approval prompts can be exploited. Such scams facilitate criminal profit, but they have also played a role in espionage and destructive cyber attacks that have shaped geopolitics and global events. Even if Fido has finally found the magic formula, 
Passwords won't disappear overnight for a host of reasons. The most important is that not all people own a smartphone at all, much less multiple devices that can backstop each other if one is lost or stolen. And it will take years of turnover before everyone around the world has access to newer devices and operating system versions that support FIDO's passwordless push. In the meantime, tech companies will need to maintain both passwordless and password-based login schemes. In its new white paper and elsewhere, FIDO is working to support this transition, but as with any other tech migration, ahem, Windows XP, the road will inevitably prove arduous. Additionally, while FIDO's proposal is a major security improvement over passwords in many ways, it isn't infallible. Its success will depend on the security of each operating system's implementation. You're already likely all too familiar with the nightmare of being forced to trust the authentication scheme of each website and service you have an account with, but no alternative is perfect. FIDO's vision will simply create a different, if potentially better and more sensible, set of weaknesses and points of failure. As FIDO itself notes, its plan for mainstream adoption of passwordless authentication is meant as a general-purpose solution and may not always fit the most extreme security requirements. And after all that, the tech industry will still need to turn FIDO's white paper into actual features that are easy to use and that convert people into passwordless believers. Schemes like Passkey could work and be more secure than passwords as they stand now, says Johns Hopkins cryptographer Matthew Green. But if the user interface for inter-device transfers suck on some devices, it will suck for all of them, which would continue to discourage use. After almost a decade of work, people looking for relief from passwords are left to hope that at this point FIDO is too big to fail. When asked if this is really it, if the death knell for passwords is truly, finally tolling, Google's brand turns serious. But he doesn't hesitate to answer. I feel like everything is coalescing, he says. This should be durable. Our third article is by John Timmer, published on March 18th, 2022. Some types of brain studies need thousands of participants to be reliable. One of the unfortunate realities of science is that small data sets often produce unreliable results, as any minor random fluctuations can have a large impact. One solution to this issue has been to build ever larger data sets where those fluctuations tend to be small compared to any actual effects. One of the notable sources of big data is the UK Biobank. Brain scans from people in the Biobank were recently used to identify changes in the brain driven by SARS-CoV-2 infection. Now, a large team of researchers has turned this idea upside down in a new paper. They took some of the biggest data sets and divided them into smaller pieces to figure out how small data sets could go before things got unreliable. And for at least one type of experiment, the answer is that brain studies need thousands of participants before they're likely to be reliable. And even then, we shouldn't expect to see many dramatic effects. The research team behind the study termed the type of work they were interested in brain-wide association studies, or BWAS. It's a pretty simple approach. Take a bunch of people and score them for a behavioral trait. 
Then give them all brain scans and see if any brain structures have differences that consistently correlate with the behavioral trait. By analyzing the whole brain at once, we avoid any biases that might come from what we think individual brain regions do. The downside is that we've defined a lot of brain structures, increasing the chance of a spurious association. And people have published BWAS studies with just a few dozen participants, meaning random chance could play a large role in any results. For the current study, the research team combined three large datasets to create a total population of over 50,000. They then ran every possible association they could, given the behavioral traits that had been scored in the participants. The simplest thing they did was search for the strongest correlation they could find. There's a measure of the strength of a correlation, termed R, where a value of 1 represents a perfect correlation, and 0 represents no correlation. Negative 1 is anti-correlation. In terms of R, the largest association the researchers found among billions of tests was 0.16, which is not especially strong. In fact, a correlation as weak as R equals 0.06 was enough to get something into the top 1% of all correlations. The same was true for anti-correlations. Unsurprisingly, many studies have already reported correlations stronger than these. The results suggest that we should be treating these results pretty skeptically. To further explore the potential issues with association studies, the researchers divided the study population into much smaller groups, ranging from only 25 participants to as many as 32,000, and then re-ran the BWAS in these smaller populations. In the smallest studies, associations could reach as high as R equals 0.52. That's much stronger than we would expect to see based on the full data set, and it suggests some pretty severe problems with small studies. But the researchers had to go much larger for these issues to go away. Statistical errors were pervasive across BWAS sample sizes, the researchers write. Even with populations in the area of 1,000, false negative rates were very high, meaning that an association found in the full data set wasn't detected. And real associations sometimes appeared to be twice as strong as they were in the full population. Overall, it appears that we need multiple thousands of participants before BWAS-style studies are likely to produce reliable, reproducible results. The researchers caution that this work applies to a specific type of brain study. It doesn't mean that all brain studies with low populations are unreliable. In fact, the paper shows that we've learned a lot about brain function from many small studies. I'd note that much of what we understand about the function of different areas of the brain comes from studying injuries that affect a single individual. The authors also find that some related analyses, using functional MRI or performing multivariate analysis, tended to produce more robust results using their dataset. Still, the paper provides a clear and important caution to people doing research in the field. The question is how that caution will be acted on. For this idea to change the standards upon which papers are published, journal editors will need to pay attention, as will other researchers in the field who act as peer reviewers. Fortunately, the growth of large public data sets like the Biobank will make it easier for everyone to demand larger, more rigorous studies.
Our final article is by Tim DeChant, published on March 18, 2022. Mac Studio is far better for the climate than the iMac Pro, even with the display. With the new Mac Studio and Studio Display, Apple has essentially told enthusiasts and professionals that if they want higher performance computing, they'll need to move on from the 27-inch iMac all-in-one. That means buying two separate products that are made in two separate locations, shipped on two separate planes and trucks, and arriving in two separate boxes. If you're an enthusiast or pro who is looking to maximize performance while minimizing your climate impacts, that doesn't seem to be a winning combination. But according to Apple's environmental reports, the combination of a Mac Studio and Studio Display produces nearly 50% fewer carbon emissions over its lifetime than the iMac Pro. How did that happen? Apple hasn't said much beyond what was mentioned at the keynote and what's in the environmental reports. But by diving into the reports, we can begin to understand where the company made improvements and where it might have gotten better at estimating its own footprint. Apple, along with several other computer manufacturers, releases reports about the environmental impact of its products. These reports are usually created by experts within the company who query its supply chain and run the data through sophisticated models. The entire process is called life cycle assessment, and one of the results is often a product's carbon footprint, or how much carbon dioxide equivalent, CO2e, it produces over its lifetime. Lifecycle analysis experts collect data from suppliers, calculate how much pollution different electric grids produce, and estimate how much energy it will take to recycle and dispose of the products when they reach the end of their lives. Approaches may vary, but most companies follow a pair of ISO standards to generate the reports. The figures are not perfect, and ideally, companies will report the uncertainties of their estimates. Apple, unfortunately, does not. Typically, these reports are audited by third parties paid by the company. Apple's description of its methodology doesn't use the word audit, though, instead saying that its data and modeling approaches are checked for quality and accuracy by the Fraunhofer Institute in Germany. That's probably something like an audit, but it's a curious omission. In a perfect world, life cycle assessments would be audited by an independent organization that doesn't have a financial relationship with the manufacturer. That's obviously something the industry should strive for, but the status quo is better than nothing. To see how Apple might have trimmed the footprints of the Mac Studio and Studio Display, let's start by comparing the products with the iMac Pro. The Mac Studio with Display is a likely upgrade path. The iMac Pro was targeted at similarly pro-leaning consumers who wanted more power than the regular iMac but didn't need the monster Mac Pro. Plus, the iMac Pro was introduced nearly four years ago, and it might be starting to show its age for early adopters. Apple coincidentally assumes that its macOS products will be used by their first buyers for four years. Apple estimates that from cradle to grave, the iMac Pro is responsible for 1,468 kilograms of carbon pollution. Slightly over half of that comes from the electricity used to power it, and 40% comes from its materials and production. Shipping the computer contributes another 4%, and recycling and disposal account for the final 1%. The combined footprint of the Mac Studio and Studio Display, on the other hand, is 806 kilograms. That's a whopping 45% less than the iMac Pro. Physical materials might account for some of the decrease. The two together weigh about 8% less than the iMac Pro. 
Another factor might be the use of recycled materials. Apple's brushed metal aesthetic relies on aluminum, a carbon-intensive material. The iMac Pro was made from virgin bauxite ore, while both the Mac Studio and Studio Display contain a significant amount of recycled aluminum. The desktop's enclosure is 80% recycled aluminum, while the display's stand is all recycled. Another reason for the new device's lower combined footprint could be the size and number of chips. Semiconductors are small, but making them requires a lot of electricity. Fabs also use etching and cleaning compounds that have high global warming potential. One of them, nitrogen trifluoride, warms the atmosphere 17,200 times more than an equivalent amount of carbon dioxide over 100 years. Fabs try to recycle or process as much as they can, but some likely escapes. For computers, the use of fewer and smaller chips often translates into a smaller carbon footprint. Compared with the Mac Studio, the iMac Pro has a relatively large logic board, and its Xeon processor and AMD Radeon Pro Vega 56 GPU are pretty big chips. The Xeon is a 525 by 44 millimeter chip, or about 2,360 millimeters squared, and the Radeon is only slightly smaller. The M1 Max, which contains both a CPU and GPU, is only about 420 millimeters squared. Why the shrink? It probably comes down to a mix of design choices, including the SOC approach and TSMC's 5 nanometer process. To see just how much of an impact chips can have, look at the higher end Mac Studio configuration with the M1 Ultra, 64 gigs of RAM, and 1 terabyte of storage. Apple says the machine's carbon footprint is 375 kilograms, or 43% larger than the base model. The difference is almost certainly the chips. The only other significant difference is the M1 Ultra's heatsink, which probably lowers the footprint since it's made of copper, a metal that is less carbon-intensive than aluminum. We haven't seen the inside of the studio display yet, but its main chip, the A13, is relatively small at 98.48 millimeters squared. The Mac Studio and Studio Display also pull ahead of the iMac Pro in terms of energy efficiency, using 50% less power. No surprise there. Compared with equivalent Intel chips, the M1 Max draws far less power for a given amount of performance. The other major category of emissions, transportation, reveals an unusual discrepancy. Despite arriving in two separate packages, the Mac Studio and Studio Display produce 45% less carbon pollution than the iMac Pro. While we don't know exactly why this is, there are a couple of possible explanations. One is that Apple reduced the size and weight of its packaging so it can fit more into each cargo plane. Another is that the company has better data today than it did a few years ago, and that data suggests that pollution from shipping is lower than previously estimated. It's possible that Apple has updated its data internally for old products, and the company has been known to reveal those updates in future product reports. But given that the iMac Pro has been discontinued, it's unlikely that will happen. We reached out to Apple for additional information and clarifications, and we'll update this article if we receive a reply. Overall, the savings in each category add up. Despite being two separate products, the Mac Studio and Studio Display have a dramatically lower combined carbon footprint than the iMac Pro. The pair also stacks up nicely with other upgrade paths and alternative purchases. 
A Bass Max Studio with a studio display is nearly dead even with last year's Bass 27-inch iMac, despite having far more power. And compared with the Mac Pro, with or without the display, the carbon footprint for the combo is at least a third lower. Plus, the Mac Studio and Studio Display come with another environmental upside. When the computer starts to show its age, you don't have to replace the display at the same time. After all, not buying something new is one of the best ways to trim your footprint. Well, that brings us to the end of today's articles. To learn more about Airs LA and the types of programs we offer, follow us at facebook.com slash A-I-R-S-L-A. If you like what's there, please hit the like button. Music provided by Hot Fire. Special thanks to Test Shot Starfish for that great space music. I'm Mike Paul, and I'll be back soon with more informative stories from Ars Technica. Thanks for listening. <laughs>